Hey, it's Harry Lang, and I'm from Brand Architects, and you're listening to the Us People podcast with Xavier Rocks. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Us People podcast. I'm your host, Savvy Rocks, and today I've got Harry with me, who is a managing director. Harry, thank you so much for coming on the Us People podcast. How are you? I'm very good, thanks, Savvy. It's good to be here. No, perfect. So I'm going to get into my first question, which is, could you tell me a little bit about your background, Harry, and where you were brought up and how you were influenced to be the person who you are today? Uh, for sure. Yeah, no, I've... Um... Uh, fairly traditional upbringing. Um, went to a went to a boarding school from a young age, um, and uh, was in boarding school through to the age of eighteen. Um, took some time out, and then went to Newcastle University, uh, where I studied uh, geography, um, and had a great time. Met a lot of my closest friends, who I'm still friends with today. Um, and it was around that time when I started to put some thought into what I wanted to do with my life professionally. I had no idea at all. Um, and I, I basically worked backwards. I, I looked at all the careers out there and uh, I started ticking off the ones I couldn't do. Um, not, 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 not to be a negative person, but I couldn't be a doctor. Um, I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, I haven't got the numbers head to be a banker or an accountant. And I went through the, the whole spectrum and um, I got to um, advertising and I thought, well, it sounds kind of cool. And you're creative but it's also a proper job of sorts and so I thought that might please my parents uh, having paid me through university so um, I got in touch with a friend of mine's dad who who um, had been in the industry and uh, he introduced me to some people and I managed to get some work experience and um, during university I uh, worked at Saatchi and Saatchi which is one of the one of the famous ones um, and then I went on to the graduate scheme. Um, I managed to get through the interviews for MNC Saatchi, which is one of the, one of the offshoot agencies. Um, and that was kind of my first job straight after graduating. Um, and I didn't, I think I was put into a department looking at sponsorship specifically. Uh, I didn't quite make the grade. There were five jobs out of two and a half thousand people. Um, this, is, this is back in 99. So a long time ago. And um, and I got the fifth spot, which put me in sponsorship. And it was fun for a summer, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. I, I thought I could explore other things. And I, I found a job in consultancy, um, which was more strategic. Um, and I thought, perhaps naively at the time, I didn't realize how important it was to have big name agencies on your CV. I, I thought yeah. I thought skills were more important. So I, um, I went to the small consultancy um, so I could get my strategic marketing skills up um, and did that for probably a couple of years um, and then realized actually a lot of the fun and the interesting work was with the bigger agencies. And it took me a good six months to get through to the interviews and uh, get round to uh, an account manager job in, in one of those big groups, which was um, called Bates 141. It's one of the, the big international groups. Yeah, um, right. and that, that was really the start of the start of my career. Um, and sort of during that process, um, I think, you know, part of the motivation was just having a job. You know, I was coming out of university and like most people uh, coming out of university, I was skint. Uh, I, need, I needed an income. Um, and so, you know, any job is better than no job. Um, so I was trying to hold on to my belief in finding a fun career. But at the same time, I was quite prepared to take anything. And I did work for free for, you know, a number of, a number of those placements. And 
luckily that doesn't really happen as much anymore thank goodness mm-hmm. um i think it's illegal now but back then you know you kind of had to do whatever it took and often that was unpaid um but yeah through all that got me into sort of integrated marketing space and i had seven years in the agency side for that until being perfectly honest i got totally fed up of um listening to clients tell me what to do um and i didn't personally think they knew what they were talking about um and you work long hours and it's great when you're young but it doesn't pay very well especially at the start um and more and more of the work is handling clients um i realized it's probably more fun to be the client so it was at that stage that um i actually left the agency role i was in i was running budweiser an agency called inferno um and it was really hard work and um my my team would stay there till nine every night and uh we had 60 live projects it was on the face of it really exciting it was all football formula one music and my friends thought it was a really cool job and it wasn't a cool job it was graft it was just pumping through campaigns and um and i kind of had enough so so that sort of switched me into what i ended up doing via a brief consultancy period i was working for an online poker startup um and that turned into a job offer for a marketing director position which at age 27 sounded very glamorous um the paycheck wasn't bad um and yeah that switched me into a an industry i didn't know anything about um and i've kind of been in that industry in some guys or other ever since so the, the last 13 14 years oh wow what inspired you to stay in the industry that you're in, especially in the creative side of it, what inspires you every morning to wake up and say, this is something that I actually want to do? Um, I think you do, in my side of the role, you know, I'm not a copywriter day, you know, day in, day out. I'm not an art director at all. I haven't got the skills for that. So the creativity I get in my role is, um, is more on the strategy side. I, I do write copy. I write a lot of white papers. Um, I tend to find in terms of pure creative, I get to do that outside of my day job these days. Uh, I, I do a lot of writing. I, I write some articles for Marketing Week campaign and a lot of the gambling press. Uh, and I do writing for fun on the side. And those those sideline projects are the things that I think about it in the evening. They're, they're the sort of fun intellectual stimulation because being perfectly frank, the sort of work that pays the bills for me as a marketing consultant it can be interesting or it can be gritty. It can just be coalface graft. So you can't guarantee uh, the, the creative um, inspiration is going to come through that. So it's kind of the the secondary projects that, um, that get me excited creatively. And then once in a while, I'll have a client project that is, I don't know, um, redoing a brand architecture. I've done a number of those and that's, you know, either developing a brand from scratch or, or more often it's refreshing a brand that's become stale and doing everything from the um, uh, redoing the logo, uh, the brand positioning, personality, mission, tone of voice, and then inputting that into a design brief. Those projects I absolutely love because I've done so many of them now that I kind of know what works in terms of the process. But yeah. I have no idea what the end result is going to be at the beginning. And the only way to find the end result is to pull in feeds from all sorts of different individuals within the company, everyone from um, the most junior um, operations body through to the CEO and interviewing them and drawing out information about the brand and where they want the business to go. Um, And those projects are really the ones I enjoy most because on day one, it's a blank piece of paper. And sometimes day three, you have to have an end result. More often than not, it takes a bit longer than that. But um, 
you know, depending on their budget and, uh, and and how much work there is to do. But, uh, but those projects creatively are really rewarding because it's it's from nothing to something, and that something then influences every aspect of their marketing campaign work from then on out. So that's pretty cool. Wow. Uh, is there any brands or, or, or marketing company that you would love to work for that you haven't worked for? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, yeah, some of the cliche ones roll off the roll off the tongue. I mean, at the moment, I think Brewdog do an awful lot of very clever, cool stuff, um, and their brand is perfectly positioned. Yeah, you know, they're they're an outlier. Um, they're a rebel by definition. So when they do stunts like the um, the stunt they did recently, where uh, they found out that Aldi, as Aldi does, had done a sort of hijacked version of one of their punk IPA beers. So rather than sending the lawyers in, they hijacked that idea and did an Aldi IPA um, and hijacked Aldi's hijack. And then that turned into a Twitter spat, which was very good natured. And then they collaborated. So Aldi stocked yeah. punk IPA, Aldi ripoffs, ripoff. And then they said, well, I'll tell you what, we're building a sustainable forest because that's the sort of stuff we like doing and spending our money on. And Aldi agreed to put in a chunk of the profits from this new beer into, into that. That came together from basically a product and then a, a lighthearted Twitter spat into a formal operational partnership in under a week. That sounds pretty cool. And not every brand can get away with it. And the only reason it, it, it does work like that is because the founder who owns um, a huge amount of the shares of the business at Brewdog is the guy doing the Twitter account and he's the one who makes decisions. So he said, it's a good idea. Let's go and do it. And um, being in a company like that, that has the, the power, the product and the brand and the bravery all at, all at the same time. That's yeah. pretty cool. So I think that would be yeah, plus, plus it makes pretty good beer. So, you know, that's, that's not a bad offshoot. Um, but um, yeah, that'd probably be probably a fairly fun one top of my mind. No, that sounds pretty cool. Um, who, who are the brands that influence you to do your work? Uh, it's, it's pretty tricky. I mean, you know, like I said, most of my clients these days are either online gambling or esports ones, and I'm I'm not a gambler myself, so I don't I don't have that user passion about the products I'm selling, which may yeah. sound it may sound counterintuitive to some people. Like, how can you how can you get passionate and how can you sell something you're not really into? And you know, it's it is what it is. I, I, I can really support uh, a client and a brand without being an advocate or a user of their products. Uh, that's just about being professional. So I'd probably have to go outside of the sort of sphere I op operate in right now. Um, yeah. The ones, I don't know, the, the, the products and brands influence me. I think they're probably not brands and products as such. I mean, I get influenced much more in my, in my, personal and business life by authors i think the, the people i read tend to influence me influence me way more than products i look at you know there might be some new technology that google brings out or there might be um, a particular piece of work that a, a rival client does that i think that's really cool i could probably use some of that in the future but i learn a hell of a lot more from reading either whether it's about people's experiences or it might be pure fiction which facilitates my writing style and makes me a better writer or um you know i might read something about someone who's gone against all adversity and it's an inspiring piece of work so when i'm feeling pretty grim about something i'm doing i, I feel a bit more empowered about it because i've just been inspired by them so that's that's probably the more influential side of the stuff that i ingest information wise 
How do you become creative when you're writing in the sense of when you're feeling uninspired? How do you become inspired again? Um, because I don't, because I do most of my writing either unpaid because I, I don't get paid for most of my articles or for fun, you know, writing, writing novels or stories and things. Um, there's no pressure on me at all. I, I only really write when I've got a, a feeling that I want to. So when I'm writing for work, um, it's it's a different mindset. You know, it's no different to every other project or task on my to-do list, except I quite enjoy it. So I tend to leave it to later in the day. You know, I tend to focus on boring jobs early. And then if there's a writing task to do, I'll do it later on because I know I'll whiz through it and I know I'll enjoy it. Um, but I think in terms of the creative writing side, um, I can't imagine... I wrote a couple of books back in the day, you know, un- unpublished. I think they're sitting on Amazon somewhere, but you know, really fun to go through the exercise of writing a, a full novel. Um, and there I sort of had to force myself. I had a couple of periods of gardening leave, so three months off off work when I couldn't work for anyone else, um, but I was still being paid. So I decided to write these books. And um, and during that process, I had to be more disciplined because you need to you need to get X number of thousand words down on a page every day. Otherwise, you'll never get to 70,000 words. So in that frame, there were days when I just said, my head's not in it. I, I'm not feeling anything here. And I'd just leave it. I'd leave it as soon as possible and go and do something else, go for a bike ride or play golf or see friends or do something. Um, but fortunately, because it was something I was really into, those days were the rarity. Um, I think, yeah, I think forcing yourself into something creative, there's probably professionals who are very capable of doing that. When it's more something in my personal life, I don't have to force myself as much. If it is a work project, I think it's just about that discipline of of planning it. If you get stumped on one particular part and and you you are lacking in that creativity, either look at it from a different angle, you know, or or leave it, do something else, and then revisit it. You know, so there's no surprise. People always say they get best ideas in you know in the shower or you know when yeah. they're going for a walk or basically there's the connecting point about all that is they're doing something else. They're distracted away from the problem, but the problem is in their head. They, they, they've investigated it, they're stumped on it, but the head's still working behind the scenes to see what's going on. So actually I'd suggest it's more about investigating the problem. If you get stuck, maybe read it through one last time, read through what the brief is or the challenge is, and let it, let it sit there and mature. You know, it's like a, like an aging whiskey, you know, it's going to, going to sit there and just stay in your mind. And at some point, something will pop back and you'll go, uh, it might not be right, but it's it's way better than the nothing I had before. And then that thread is what you can then follow. You know, you'll, you'll take that path down whichever route it is. So I think so it's almost like tricking yourself into thinking about it without thinking about it. And that's definitely true. I agree with that. What is the best money you've ever spent on a book? The best money I've ever spent on a book? Yeah. Oh, challenging question. I mean, you know, so it's not a video cast. I'll show you my library. I mean, there's root walls and wow. walls in here. There's um, there's quite a few. Um, probably just glancing around. I mean, that would I'd probably have to think of what my favourite book is. And that question is yeah. that question's a, a giant one for for someone who enjoys reading like I do. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I wouldn't go down the route of like professional book. You know, I, I don't tend to read those. You know, be a better manager or you know here's a quick fix route to a million pounds I, I find those books to be pretty boring and fairly useless for most people um i think 
I think, oh, what was it? I think, oh yeah, I'll tell you what, one that, I, one that got the most value from, I think I picked it up for free in a ski resort in the late 1990s and it was train spotting, Irvin Welsh's train spotting. So I didn't pay any money for it. So that's a good start. And I must've read that book 20 times over the, over the course of that year because it was written phonetically. It was the first time I'd ever seen someone writing in an accent and in a broad Scottish accent. And so I was reading this book and then the accents were actually manifesting in my head. And it was almost like watching a movie because you're thinking in the accent of the characters. And That's I got really sucked into this world. And you know, nowadays it happens a lot more often and maybe I just hadn't read the right books until then. That one, yeah, I think in terms of value, a it changed the way I viewed writing completely. And that sort of set me on a bit of a path of trying to write myself. Um, and B, I read it so many times. Yeah, I, I got repeated, repeated views of it. So that was, that was a pretty good score. Do you find that there's always something that you missed from the last time that you read it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I skin read as well. Um, so I, I tend to scan rather than read every word, which I probably... I probably do miss out some, but I tend to I tend to get a fairly good understanding of every page I read. But I know I read quickly, and I know I probably do miss out. So the books, like the favourite books, and good example, because um, I read on a Kindle, so an e-reader, yeah. um, and I, I have it by my bed. I take it with me on train trips, on flights. I, you know, it's my favourite gadget. But I lost it. I left it at my parents' house a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, and since since been refound, which is great. But when I went on holiday recently. I came down to my office in the basement and I thought I need some, I need some books. So I grabbed some of my favorite books and I took them on holiday and I was rereading them. One of them I hadn't read in 20 years. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that was pretty cool because definitely it was a completely different experience. A, it had been so long, but B, I, I remembered the story. I remember the characters, but I'm 20 years older as well. You know, I'm, I'm a 20 years different person. And so I was reading this book from a, completely different mind and body position um and that was that was awesome and now now it's given me the hunger to go into my book collection and go right what else did i miss or what you know what else is going to be a different book to me now than it was when i first picked it up and i obviously loved it so i'm going to enjoy it but i'll probably enjoy it for very different reasons now you know i'm i'm in my 40s and um i've got a daughter of my own you know what the life has changed um so yeah i think that's that's given me a bit of a, a hunger to go back into the collection and start again yeah, I like that. Definitely like that. What would you describe your writing style? And how would you compare your writing style to possibly somebody else's book that you enjoyed, just like the one you were telling me about? Um, if it's comparing to someone like Irvin Welsh or some of my favourites, then my, I think comparing it would be not as good. I think that's a, that's a simple fact. I think. That, no, no, I mean, Christ, you know, they, those, there's a reason they're multi hundreds of millions of selling authors out there. They're, they're just excellent at what they do and they craft fantastic characters and plot. And I'm still very much on the sort of learning path. I'm developing a style. Um, I don't have, I don't have a fixed style in my day to day. Um, the closest thing to a style would be in the articles I do. So the ones for Marketing Week, they tend to be very honest and very blunt. Um, I, I rarely, and that's kind of the style of my consultancy. I've got, you know, I, I'm, I actually say on my website that I'm brutally honest in my approach. I, I don't waste time. I don't blow, um, blow smoke in anyone's particular direction. Um, I'm very much, here's a problem and here's what I'm recommending. And it's quite harsh sometimes, but it does tend to save people money and, and get to the problems quicker. 
So um, yeah. my articles tend to be in a similar similar vein. So stylistically, um, I don't really take any prisoners. I'm very uh, honest and upfront about what I what I'm like and normally what I don't like. Um, when I dismiss something, when I comment negatively about something, whether it's a campaign or a product, um, I always try and rationalize and validate why I feel that way. It's not just subjective. So I'm trying to give a little bit of science behind it, but ultimately it is subjective because it's it's me writing the piece. You know, you can I can make the argument the other way very easily. But um, there's um, there's certainly an, an element of levity to it. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm you know natural born comedian, but I try and keep them lighthearted and yeah, make make them amusing enough in parts. So at least you know, if someone's reading something quite dry that I've written, there'll be elements of that story, whether it's in the way it's introduced or the analogies I use or the metaphors that actually keeps it fresh and you know, relatively amusing. Because yeah, I, I'd hate to be I'd hate to be accused of being a boring writer. I think that would, that that would take all the fun and the uh, the joy away from me. No, oh, definitely. Talk to me about the most challenging project on a campaign that you've ever worked on. And also, what did you learn from it as an individual? Wow. Okay, I reckon, I reckon we'll have to go back into the archives here. Um, okay, well, I'll tell you what. There's, there was one There was one that was my, fa- my favourite campaign, and it was probably the most challenging at the same time. So um, I was working for a small agency called Angel um, in Battersea, and really cool agency, really lovely people, uh, but really small. And I'd come from a really big agency where I had lots of resources and lots of teams and massive creative department. And this place was like 16, 17 people. So we you know, we needed clients. Uh, so we were always on the lookout for new business. And everyone had to just jump in and try and win clients. And we got the, I think the MD got the sniff um, that Penguin, um, I think he'd met someone from Penguin Books. And the only mm-hmm. sniff of a problem that he'd sensed with what they were doing was they couldn't get young men to read. And that was, that, that was the, the big problem they had. And they always had it. And no one had solved it. Basically, young men didn't read. It wasn't cool. You know, they'd like to do other stuff instead. So he brought this question back and we, we worked on it together as a group and collectively came up with this campaign uh, called Good Booking. Um, and the insight behind that was uh, that young men that read are more attractive to women, which, which is largely true. Uh, women will see a guy with a book versus a guy reading The Sun and think he's, he's more intellectual, he's possibly more sensitive. If he's, exactly. if, he, if he's got a brain on him, he's likely more successful in life. So this this triggers a bunch of assumptions. Um, so we used this insight and we turned it into a campaign. But the problem was Penguin Books, each book has a marketing budget, which is compared to big brands, it's really quite small. Yeah, it's smaller than you might imagine. So we then had to, when I say we, uh, I, was, I was the account director on the project. I had to go in front of all the editors and a whole load of staff in two meetings over the course of two days. And we're talking like 50 plus people in each meeting. And I had to persuade them to give their marketing budget for their authors and persuade their authors and say, rather than putting posters up for your book, we're going to put it into this pot with this campaign and have 10 books together. They'd never been done before. And effectively, it was using it was using sex to sell books which caused all sorts of ructions. You know, the publishing industry is notoriously slow and very old school and very reticent to change. And we were going, you know, we're using sex to sell books. And by the way, I want your budget. And um, eventually, you know, these meetings happened and we did a lot of work behind the scenes and, and we got them on side. The project, you know, the campaign was a huge success. You know, it was, it was actually 
a bigger success on the PR side for Penguin, I think, than really on the sales side. I think everything worked fine. There was in-store stuff and everything ticked over. But really, you know, in terms of the global map of noise it made and Penguin's perception in the industry, uh, the awards it won, it was a it was a real sort of game changer of how publishing can approach readership groups and be a bit more brave and be a bit more out there. And we used, you know, it was very digitally heavy as well. You know, we had people in those meetings. We, we, we're going back to the early 2000s. You know, we had people who, no one knew what PPC was in those rooms. No one knew what a viral campaign was. Um, we had we had gamified uh, gamification was involved in it, um, and it was just really cool. And it was done on a shoestring, and it really worked. Um, but that you know that project was it was a labour of love. You know, it really was a labour of love. And ultimately, I don't think the agency made enough money. Well, you know, they had to let me go, and they said, "Look, it's wonderful. We're wanting loads of awards, but." We can't, we can't carry on. We can't afford to pay you. We're not making enough money. And I was spending all my time because I believed in this project. And, you know, I kind of knew which way the wind was blowing. Um, so I didn't mind at all. It was, it was, it was what it was. But um, so, yeah, really difficult, real hard work. We all worked above and beyond what anyone was getting paid for the project. But we believed in it. We, we loved it. Um, and that's something, you know, I, it, it, it's been a, you know, it's a rarity. You get so into something with some really good people as well. Um, and the end, yeah, the end result is something you're all really proud of too. When did you realize that words had power in them to inspire people all over the world? When did you realize that what you wrote, what you say can inspire people, but also what you write down has power and weight? Uh, I, I don't personally believe my words have a huge amount of weight. Um, but um, I think I understand the question about um, you know, words having power. I think... You know, the, the, I understand the reach of some of the some of the magazines I write for, like you know, Marketing Week. You look at their social reach; they've got you know quarter of a million people on Twitter following them, and the readership I think is is, is in the hundreds of thousands. So um, there's an awful lot of eyeballs that can read the stuff. I I don't tend to get a huge amount of feedback from it, which is a bit of a shame. Um, you know, it'd be great if not from the ego point of view or building my own reach. I'm not overly bothered about that. I I, I write because I enjoy it, but also I'd like to improve. I'd like to get the feedback or have people say, you know, yeah, your point was missed here or you know, the, the critical side. And I don't really get much of that. Um, I think, you know, the writing I tend to do or the bits of work I tend to do towards campaigns or building brands, I think they're much more influential because those brands go on to be sort of significant financial entities. You know, they, 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 they get used and in some cases loved by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Um, and you know that you were there at the seed building the brand up from scratch and you were the mm-hmm. one who helped to find the direction and the personality and that was all designed to appeal to people and give people a reason to have a relationship with that brand so i think i've had more experience of of that power and influence from the the brand building side and the writing side yeah i mean you know the power of words is is everywhere we look you know it's 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 every news report it's every every song we listen to um every piece of great writing you get i don't think anything i've created as yet has really changed the dial for anyone a huge amount but you know there's the aspiration there that's there i did yeah. had, had an email had an email a few weeks ago from a girl who'd read one of my articles that was on marketing week and i wrote it a long time ago and it was a it was called a letter to my younger self right and it was meant to be 20 years or yeah 20 years into my career here's the advice i wish i'd had so it's a bit of a standard trope thing to do but 
I really enjoyed writing it. And she'd found it on Marketing Week's website. And she was starting her career in agency marketing. And it had really resonated. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one email. I don't, as I said, I don't get many feedback emails like that at all. And I wish I did. That one I found really was amazing. It was so cool that somebody had actually read my stuff for one. B, they'd found it useful in context of exactly the position I'd been in 20 years before. Because I did write it very genuinely. It's like, I wish to God I'd known this because I made some decisions like everyone does. And actually having a bit of advice like that would have helped me had I just read it you know, 20 years before. So, yeah, I mean, that was, that, that was pretty cool. And that was definitely a sort of, you know, a warm feeling of, okay, well, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad that was useful to somebody out there. Yeah. Definitely. Talk to me about education and talent. So do you feel like it's enough to have a talent and go on in life and continue to do it without having the ed- education? Or do you feel like education is a huge part of you being able to develop as an individual and to evolve? Would you say you need both? Would you say you need one? Or would you say that it's it's even it's 50-50 where you can go on a road where you just have your talent and excel? Um. education and a good education is a leg up for sure you know it's it can can frame a path for you it can direct the way your thinking is um but not everyone gets a chance to have one of those and not everyone who goes on to great things has had a significant or expensive education behind them so it's far from a requirement far from a requirement um it is a very useful thing to have you know just in the nuts of bolts of building a career you look at the way you go about getting a job you know come out of come out of school if you, if you finish school or even before then at some point you write a cv and you've got to beat a number of people uh, to get into a job now these days going to most professional jobs or any uh, use marketing as an example you haven't got a degree then you're going to struggle to get into that first interview because you're up against 200 people who have got a degree um, and some of those got a first degree from a really smart oxbridge university so it's about opening gates. It's opening gates and making yourself stand out when everyone looks very much the same. And when you've got no experience, everyone does look very much the same. You know, you're just you're a name and an email address and zero experience. So it's definitely a leg up. Um, but like I said, it's far from a foregone conclusion to greatness. And I think you know, there's reams of people that have gone from very humble beginnings uh, intellectually into hugely successful um, positions of power. Um, so that route is there. It's just harder, you know. It's harder because you have to break down those walls yourself, and you have to break it down with intuition and in- initiative and graft, um, which is fine if you've got all those things. But then you need a big dose of luck as well. And you know, the educational piece will get those doors open in a more guaranteed traditional fashion, because that's kind yeah. of how the job market works, sadly. You know, but there's got to be some way to grade people early on, and, and education is one of those grading points. Latterly, if you're going through your career, talent and you know natural ability, they're all well and good. But I think it's pretty well agreed that that's that's one way you can play it. But you can and do improve yourself by constant education, and it doesn't have to be formal. I think this is where you know, the word education immediately brings to mind professional qualifications. Uh, yes. going off and doing a, you know, a, a marketing course or a, a mini MBA from whatever or um, going back to back to college and doing a master's and something, all of which cost a lot of time and a lot of money. 
Um, whereas in education, I, I, I did, a, did a talk the other day with a group of students from Middlesex University who are marketing students. And, um, and afterwards, I sent them this link of all these free marketing resources, like training courses from Google, from LinkedIn, from various um, products who do free training on their on their platforms. And they're all out there and they're all free. So, you know, I think educating yourself as you go through your career is a really good way to keep ahead of the game, especially in the fast moving world of digital marketing, where you know, there's some things using digital that simply didn't exist five years ago. TikTok wasn't around. Snap wasn't around. Insta was burgeoning. Twitter was burgeoning. Um, you know, 10 years ago, none of these things were properly embedded. And so if you look at it that way around, you could be the best marketing director in the world. And yet somebody with two years experience in those channels is better than you. Simple point. They're better than you because they've got two years and you've got nothing. So I think there is that constant education piece and just remembering that it doesn't have to be some terrifying, you know, thousands of pounds of college fees or two, three years out of your life studying. It can be as simple as I'm going to take an hour twice a week and I'm going to focus on becoming excellent at this, whether it's yeah. Spanish language course, whether it's learning to code, whether it's digital marketing channel, whether it's you know, your, your social media presence. It might just be that because you've got a passion for that, you think, well, I'm going to invest more time in, in doing that, doing what you're doing, for example, you know, running, running a successful podcast and doing that with the passion behind it. But also there's a professional element to, to gleaning new skills there um, across the board. So I think that's um, that's the thing to sort of bear in mind is it doesn't have to be something that the bigger deal you make out of the idea of, you know, it's, it's unachievable or unattainable and it'll stop you doing something. But none of it's unattainable. You've just got to reframe what education means. It just means learning something new. And learning, yes. something, learning something new could be as simple as going on YouTube and watching someone do a TED talk about something you're vaguely interested in. And that educates you about a whole different way of thinking. Yeah, that's 10 minutes of TED talk. That didn't take much and it's free. So right. it's about perception. What's the best advice you've ever received, Harry? <laughs> um there was one from there's one I often quote from one of my first bosses, um, and he said, uh, "If you can see a bandwagon, you've probably missed it." And I always like that. I always like that one because it, it summarised so much of the crud and crap I heard from um, people in advertising. You know, um, it, basically they're like, "We must do this. We must get into this," and it's like that horse is bolted. You know, that that is the bandwagon, and everyone's on it. And yeah, you, know, you can have you can have that analogy for everything from a, a new trend in advertising through to cryptocurrency. Um, you know, it, it it still rings very true. Um, I think be, beyond that one, which is quite practical in the workplace, I think the um, the other the other sort of good bit of advice is um, treat people how you want to be treated. I know it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but as all cliches come true, it's yeah, it's it's very pertinent. It's very pertinent. You'll you'll find. Yeah, if you're a professional career, you'll find there's there's the good people and they stay in your mind and you speak well of them. And when someone asks you about them, you say, yeah, they're great. They're really good to work with, really good, fun people, really supportive, humble, you know, all these lovely things about them. These people go far. And then there's the people that aren't very nice. And there's plenty of them, too. Um, and a lot of them, yeah, a, a lot of them are hugely successful financially. Um, but there's a lot of those sorts of people I've come across through a 20 year career who I never plan to see again. Um, they're simply not people I want to waste one more breath on. Um, 
And, uh, you know, if, if you're that sort of person, um, fine. Yeah, you do your thing. But um, I think that there's, there's definitely a better type of person to be. And I think there's no necessity to be evil or, or bad. I think you can be successful and nice at the same time. Perhaps yeah. me being naive. Yeah, most definitely. What is the most important thing to you at the moment in the world? So what resonates with you that you find important to you right now? Or is there anything happening in the world that you are passionate about? Um, there's a simple answer is my, my family. Uh, I've got a two-year-old daughter, um, Tilly, and uh, oh. my wife, and there's the three of us. Um, it's very hard to get past that as a priority. Uh, oh. it, it, that, that is the priority. Um, there, there's obviously a lot of issues out there in the world, uh, and I'm not going to dive into all those. I think we'd be here all night. Um, yeah. I think like most salient, sensible, sensitive people, the world's in a bit of a, bit of a state at the moment. Um, and in some directions, there's quite a lot of good work being done to clean it up and to get, get, it, get the shit back online. Um, and in other areas, it's going south, um, which is concerning. And then there's great concern about it. And this is you know, economically, politically, environmentally. And they, those are the three which are... They're pretty big, impactful things about the world that not only we live in, but you know, future generations will. And it bothers me. And you know, and the thing that it's very easy for everyone to take the position of we can't affect change; they're too big. And it seems that you know there, there is the counterculture movement. People are taking responsibility now. People are collaborating, and it's, it's, it's facilitated in a great way by you know, internet, social media. These communication yeah. channels have allowed people to become collectives and actually through the power of grouping together they're able to make more significant impacts you know they're able to make newsworthy the, the sort of things that weren't newsworthy previously and call to rights those who are doing bad against the world so there's you know there's there's bad things happening there's a counterculture that's trying to trying to get the world back on track it's going to be fascinating to see how it manifests because everything's moving so very quickly i mean if we yeah. if we were living if we were living, you know, 100 years ago in Victorian times, I mean, it'd be quite odd for us to be doing a podcast. But that aside, um, you know, we could probably sit down and and plan out the next 20 years of our lives. And the only difference is going to be what colour sackcloth we're wearing. You know, it, it, everything was slow paced. And um, and that pace is just accelerated and accelerated. Now, you know, it's it's at what point is it too fast for our humble little brains to handle? Yeah, it's, it's getting to that place now where it's just a bit too much, you know. But where where do we chill? Where do we relax? And um, yeah, where, where do we find the time to get away from insurmountable noise that's coming from all these channels and media and devices? And I think there's gonna be there's gonna be a crunch point where you know, enough is enough. Like humans are gonna go kaboom. And yeah, I, hopefully everyone will realize before it gets to that state that you know putting down your phone, disconnecting, unplugging go back, go back to just taking a bit of time for yourself. You know, the world carries on spinning. Uh, you don't have to be plugged into it 24-7 because that's not healthy. Yeah, I totally agree with that. How do you feel the next generation will deal with everything that's going on? Because we as a generation, we do things one way. But how do you feel the next generation coming into the whole marketing, creativity, writing, how do you think it will impact them on how they do things? Um, 
the technology itself is going to enhance the speed with which things happen and get done. Obviously, AI is a hot topic item at the moment. So a lot, a lot of the background work will inevitably be done via AI and, and big data, um, which you know, some people think you know it's doing away with jobs. It, just, it doesn't. It just changes the jobs that are going to be out there and available. You know, uh, every school child should be learning to code. They really, they really should be. They should either be learning to code or becoming excellent at the analysis of big data and the functioning of machines because those are going to be the big ticket jobs for the next generation. You know, that's doesn't take much of a brain to suggest that. Um, but that aside, you know, they'll do what every other generation does. They'll evolve. You know, um, you know, no one can predict exactly what it's going to look like, but we live in a world that was very different to our parents' generation. It wasn't as if they were there going, oh, we should we should plan for this and that because, you know, I'm pretty sure I've got an inkling that, you know, these channels are going to turn up and, uh, you know, this is what TV looks like and the thing called Netflix is going to arrive and, you know, Apple's going to be worth a trillion dollars and yeah, no one knew anything. We just we just went headfirst into it and we pop out the other side and we go, wow, that, that, was, that was fast. Um, the next generation will do the same thing. They'll, they'll you see, you see you know, my niece, age 13, and she's their digital native, total digital native, and, and most kids are. This, is, this isn't technology to them. This is life. So... Yeah, you know, this is what the world looks like. They'll move with it, and the uh, the marketing and advertising industries will just move along with it. And it, so, someone like me, given another ten years, I'll be in my early fifties, and I'll look at it and go, "I don't understand any of this." But that's what <laughs> that's what older people do. That's that's what yeah. older people will always do. So, you know, it's a it's a bit of a circle of life thing. It, it'll be terrifying for those in the peripheries, and it'll be business as usual for those who are living it. No, that's true. Tell me a little bit about, how can I say this, I'm pull it in the right way. Tell me a little bit about a time where you wanted to give up. Was there ever a time when, Harry, you wanted to give up on what you were doing because of maybe lack of support, lack of funding, um, you were working too hard? What advice would you give to the next generation or even people, not necessarily the next generation, who just want to become or go into a similar role right like you're in at the moment what advice would you give them um i think so in the first part of the question you know, there have been plenty of instances and 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 i have had to give up you know i've had to close down an agency i, I set up in my 20s um funding fell through at the last minute uh, i was funding the payment of the bills i couldn't do it anymore didn't have any more money and mm -hmm. that was a fait accompli you know I, I had to shut up the thing that i was most passionate about in the world at that time um, that was pretty painful. And it took me a good year or so to, you know, make sure debts were covered and, and get myself out of the hole. Pretty unpleasant, um, but useful, you know, with hindsight, useful learning curve. I think you know, the, advice, the advice to give is when you're against a wall like that, more often than not, those are the instances where you rely on your friends, you know, you rely on the people who know you beyond work. You know, I, I traditionally would go off and have a pint with one of my best mates and, uh, have a bit of a chat and say, look, I need to offload for 10 minutes. You know, 10 minute rule, just need to offload and you offload and you're there for them when they offload to you in another instance. And you get out of your system, you get you know, that problem shared ethic. You know, it definitely, definitely helps. You get the problem aired. They probably don't have any advice directly because they, they might not understand the industry or the, the problem at hand. What they can do is say, well, have you thought about this? Or to be honest, there's not much you can do about that. So why don't you refigure what the plan is? 
Um, at the very least, they listen, and most likely they'll point you in a direction, or they'll tell you to stop being stupid. You know, you're you're overanalyzing. You're you're making it into a deal that doesn't have to be made. Um, and yeah, I mean, for lack of talking at yourself in a mirror, <laughs> which would be first sign of madness, probably um, just airing the problems you've got briefly, because no one wants to hear someone harp on for hours. I think. I think that actually girl, girls do that much better than boys. I think boys are more 10 minutes and you're done. We don't, you know, we don't want to hear more than 10 minutes. Um, but that tends to help focus. And it was a bit like we talked about earlier on, that idea of letting your brain just release it from whatever pocket it's in. You put it out there and go, actually, now it's out there, I'm feeling a bit better. And now and actually I have, I have got a bit of a plan about what happens next. And it might be, you know, it's tough. The world's a difficult place. You know, it's it's sometimes bad things happen and you can't control them and you have to suck it up. Worst yeah. thing to do is dwell on that. Yeah, you know, if you if you're a dweller, if you're dwelling on something, yeah, you know, if it's a sinking ship, then that ship's going to the bottom, whether you like it or not. So you just got to hop off, get into the life raft, and paddle on to the next island, um, because there's really no point in dwelling. Yeah, you know, the down down that path is madness. Um, and so I think and what, what, you're, what you become better at as you get older and as you, as you get a few of these disasters under your belt, what you get better at is the speed with which you cut the ties to problems and just let them float off because it's, it's not worth hanging on to them. Um, and it becomes, it becomes much easier as well because it's something you've been through before. I have one more question for you, Harry, and that is where can we find you and all your social medias if someone would like to get in contact with you just like I did? Oh, yes, indeed. Um, I, I'm not hugely active. I, 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 um, I'm on Twitter, I think, at Mr. Harry Lang. Um, but the, the one I'm on most, I use the most for publishing the writing and things is either my website, which is uh, brandarchitects.co.uk uh, or LinkedIn. You just search for Harry Lang at Brand Architects. And uh, if any of your listeners have any questions about their marketing career, um, I'm always very happy to answer those because I understand the value that I would have got um, back in the early 2000s. So uh, yeah, I'd be more than happy to answer their questions. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving me all your honest, honest like answers for everything. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, you're most welcome guys thank you so much for listening to the yes people podcast and please remember you can subscribe to spotify itunes google play and any other platform that you prefer listening to please also follow us on facebook instagram and twitter and you can also donate to the us po- people podcast by simply going to the savvy rocks website or just typing in paypal.me forward slash us people podcast Thank you for listening. Stay happy, stay positive, and as always, please continue to be kind to one another. That was great. That was, that was actually really, really good fun, Savia. Thank you very much. It was, um, it was interesting. You sort, of, you sort of got me thinking now, some of those questions as well. So I'm going to go and raid my, raid my book collection this evening. <laughs>